Hello, this is Haim Goodman-Strauss of The Math Factor. I hope you're all having a terrific summer. Today we have a special presentation of Samuel Hansen's podcast, Strongly Connected Components. It's very similar to The Math Factor, and I know you'll all enjoy checking out all of his episodes over at acmescience.com. Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen. And you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 38, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's episode is Heim Goodman-Strauss, professor of mathematics at the University of Arkansas and host of the Math Factor podcast. There's a lot of mutual podcast love, some talk about the importance of teaching teachers, and also a long, winding road to puzzles. Here we go! Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's podcast is University of Arkansas Mathematics Professor Heim Goodman-Strauss. He is also the host of the Math Factor podcast as well as the Math Factor radio show. Hello, Heim. Hi, how are you? I am doing absolutely fantastic today. How about you? Super. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to speak with you. One of the things that I did mention is that you, you do host this Math Factor podcast, which we'll get to a bit later on. It's something I definitely want to talk to you about. But I noticed looking around at the things that you've done, one of the things you really are interested in is kind of the actual visual representation of mathematics, because a lot of the work you do is in tiling and geometry. So I was wondering, what, what about that area really kind of brings out your interest? Well, I guess, I guess there's a couple of questions there. So partly, you know, what's my interest in the particular kinds of mathematics I do, say tiling and geometry, and then my interest in visual representation. I think what drew me into a lot of the style of mathematics that I do is, in fact, that it can be visually represented or explained simply. Even deeper, deep ideas can often be at least sort of discussed in a way that makes them sound sort of straightforward in that area. I guess, really, I, as far back as I can remember, I've been trying to, you know, as a child, you know, drawing a lot of pictures, which looking back on them were pretty geometrical or pretty mathematical, or I've been playing with mathematics in a hands-on way, and I really, really love that. I um, really enjoy understanding what things very concretely and directly and taking abstract ideas and being able to realize them in a way that I can share them with people that are not necessarily mathematicians. In fact, I think that's kind of a weakness of, of a lot of mathematics is that we've sort of lost sight of the original physical or real motivation for much of what we do. I, I agree. I happen to do graph theory myself, so I'm kind of towing that line between having to draw things and having to not draw things. Right. Well, that's that's the danger. I think working in a field that you can do directly, it then becomes hard to convey to the outside world that, well, in fact, the abstract is important, and that that's actually where the real action is, right? I mean, you can kind of make it seem too easy and too real and too connected <laughs> to, to reality and the visual representations as well. So I haven't really resolved that issue at all. 
What do you think was was the thing that kind of caused mathematicians to go away from from what it was for a long time? Which uh, I mean, for a long time, mathematics was essentially synonymous with geometry. It, right. it, they were they were one and the same. Uh, what sort of things do you think maybe caused mathematicians to go away from things that they can visually represent to the kind of pure abstract realm that we live in now? Yeah, well, when did that happen? I mean, um, it seems like it must have been late 19th century that that people began to start to distrust pictures and, you know, the putting calculus on a formal foundation over the previous, say, century, that throughout the 19th century seems like, to me, it was kind of the beginning of the end, but it was still physically motivated. You know, people still, Riemann, for example, I mean, he had plenty of things out there in the real universe that he was concerned with, but somehow we started to lift off into sort of studying the abstraction for its own sake. And um, I don't know. What is it that we what is it that we actually study? It seems like we study logical structures, right? Just sort of arbitrary logical structures. But I don't think that's the answer we would have, that mathematicians would have given 120 years ago. It would have been logical structures applied to some particular kind of real thing that was out there worth studying. I don't, I don't really know. But it does seem like a wrong turn to me, for sure. I mean, I really have to say, I love my graduate points at topology class. And, I, and it was fantastic to sort of seeing these words sort of fitting together and forming these structures that just existed in their own right. But then as I began to teach and I began to sort of be more engaged as a professional mathematician and so on, I um, I just found that 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 seemed to me to be an impulse really worth resisting. You know, <laughs> It's too easy to come up with arbitrary logical structures that hang together. In some sense, that's that's the easiest thing in the world. Coming up with a logical structure that reflects something that you're after is another matter. And of course, you know, good mathematicians, all good mathematicians do that. I, w- I was wondering if, if you've noticed, because this is something at least I personally feel that I've noticed. I mean, through all of the blogs uh, about mathematics on the internet now and YouTube channels and also it, something, a kind of growing community of, of mathematical artists as well. Do you think at all that there might be a little bit of a movement back to being able to better visually represent the mathematics that we do? Yeah, but I think it's broader than just visually representing mathematics. I think there's, there seems to me to be a broader movement back towards recognizing that good mathematics is somehow anchored in something besides mathematics, right? Or anchored outside of itself. Mathematics has this tendency, like maybe any system of thought, that it can kind of fold in on itself. It's kind of amusing to ask people what their PhD thesis was about. Can they (laughs) explain it to someone on an airplane, right? Sitting next to them. And in most cases, you can't because you're going down this long path where it's all totally self-referential, many iterations of that. But it seems to me talking, uh, it just, I mean, maybe it's my own sort of maturing into a career, but it it seems to me that people in areas that would have been more um, self-absorbed are are now beginning to look outwards. I I could just be wrong about that. All I know anecdotally is that in my own department, a substantial number of people are really able to talk about real-world applications of their work or at least ways that it reflects the real world or that it's anchored in in something beyond mathematics itself. 
but I don't really know how representative that is, if that's new or not. Well, it, it does help that you guys currently have Edmund Harris there to talk about things, too. Well, yeah, I guess so. But I mean more broadly than that, you know, I mean, even in, in areas that I wouldn't have thought really that would apply to. I mean, I definitely hope that that's true. I hope that it's a, a movement that's more overall. And we are both people who are trying to, I mean, actively trying to kind of foster this this better ability to talk about mathematics specifically as, I mean, I'm clearly a podcaster. That's what I'm doing right now. And you are as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the math factor started. Because it started originally as, as a radio uh, segment, and then uh, you turned it into a podcast, right? Right. Yeah, that's sort of really, none of it was my idea, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, like anyone that listens to my uh my pieces knows that Martin Gardner's name comes up pretty regularly. And I mean, I think all of us are pointing, are sort of drawing on his lesson. He was enormously influential on me in all kinds of ways as a mathematician, but also as somebody, as a way of learning how to talk about mathematics and share mathematics. And, you know, that, that exposing people to mathematical ideas was a good thing and was, it was possible to do. So that was always around. So then my co-host, Kyle Kellums, who runs a, he's now doing a daily uh, hour human interest kind of magazine format show. He always is looking for regular features, needless to say, because it's hard work what he does. And I'd been put doing a math puzzle on a week on the university listserv, and he just called me up and it went from there. So we did a radio segment once a week for a few years and started podcasting those and but I have to say, I mean, I was looking at, I noticed on your podcast, there's a big difference between what you were able to do and what we were doing. Um, because we were on the radio, initially, we were very constrained to do short pieces. Yeah. And that really, really did affect the kinds of things that I was able to do. And I found it ultimately very frustrating. So those of the listeners that have sort of stuck around as I, I've been off the air largely for over a year and the last few pieces have been sort of long and rambling and taking my time to really explain something very different than the format that we had, had been doing. I think the the space that you're giving in your podcast is ultimately a, a better idea. I started originally with a rather odd, sweary talk show about mathematics called Combinations and Permutations, which has developed a bit of a listening listenership. But that listenership is primarily fellow college students who kind of like to hear bad words while learning about mathematics, <laughs> which, I mean, it's, it's a very specific audience. Yeah, it's a very specific audience, but I, I like them quite a bit. And then I realized that, it, I mean, I was glossing over some stuff on that. I mean, there was, it was meant to be kind of jokey and things. So I, I wanted to start this podcast and because I wanted to be able to talk to people like you or to some of my previous uh, guests, like, say, Stephen Strogatz or Joseph Gallian, and, and really ask them about why they do what they do. Because I, I find storytelling to, or story, the stories behind why people do things to be as important most of the time than what they actually did. Well, it's especially important with something like mathematics, too, where the way it's presented to people, it's like an accomplished 
thing. It's done. It's over. It's, there's no human quality apparent in, in the mathematics that we present to our students. And, it, of course, nothing could be further than the truth. And also it seems to just kind of appear out of thin air, too. Right. I mean, not, yeah. not only is it over and done with, we very rarely seem to mention who did it in the first place. Much less what they were eating for breakfast that day or you know, the kinds of people they were, what the context was. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a question I have asked yet. So I, I think I better, uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> I didn't actually have breakfast, <laughs> as it happens. But. You did the math factor for quite, quite a while. I mean, you are one of very few people who can claim to have released more mathematical podcasts than I have. Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> For the time being, you have, you have to just catch up. But I was thinking about that because my pieces were shorter. I think we're actually probably about close to tide right now. You're, what, this is going to be something like your 70th piece? Well, this, that, is, this is the 38th Strongly Connected Components. I've done nearly 70 combinations and permutations. We're about to record the 50th episode of the Math Maths podcast as oh, well. Oh, so that's really adding up, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think we did about a hundred. Well, we had altogether about two hundred and fifty pieces, but they were generally much shorter than yours. So, yeah, I was I was wondering how you can. I mean, even though they were shorter pieces, you still had to come up with an enormous amount of topics. And and so, how did you keep on finding something new that that? And also, you were aiming at a different audience. So, not only something new, but something new that people who are not actively seeking out mathematical podcasts would enjoy listening to. Well, there's a lot of answers to that, but I think you're you're you've have the same secret, which is it's you know, approaching people is a, is a really great way to go because it is the most interesting having different voices on the program, different perspectives, the kinds of topics that that they drive, right? There's no shortage of that. But admittedly, some pieces were a stretch. Some of the early radio pieces I still haven't put them on the web, and I, I don't know. I probably won't. They're <laughs> they're okay, but they're not. You know, sometimes it is difficult, and especially within the constraint of the ten or so minute format, that was very difficult because I would try to convey something interesting, any number of things, and sort of breaking that up into sort of short little segments that that could stand alone and be interesting and have sort of a a narrative arc where finish up the answer to the last week's little conundrum move along and then leave a little cliffhanger for the next one. That was enormously constraining. And I don't think it was always successful. But, you know, we did it. But ultimately, it just kind of wore me out. So that's why uh, <laughs> that's why I haven't done it in a while. Plus, I'm also now chair of my department, which is kind of time-consuming, too, and just sort of my creative energy is going elsewhere. But it's nice to be in a, a different kind of platform, right? Because now I can sort of take the kind of culture that I was trying to put there out into the world, and I can now sort of move the culture internally within my own department. And that's been really great. I think we've really made a lot of strides towards making mathematics more direct and more connected and more real here at the University of Arkansas. Edmund Harris, you mentioned earlier, has been here for the last year and very much fitting into that agenda. So in case anyone's listening who might, might be interested in what sort of things you are, are trying to do in order to make this, this culture that, that you have tried to express through Math Factor into your actual department? I, 
do you have any specifics as to as the things that have been done or perhaps suggestions for things that people could do to make their mathematical community better? So any kind of outreach, giving interesting and meaningful talks or presentations to a broader audience. I mean, I think, of course, plenty of people are doing that, and that's always important. Since I'm in a position where I can control course schedules and things like that, we've created a very interesting course, which I know Edmund was on your program some time ago. I don't know if he spoke about this or not. The Mathematical Thought course, correct? Yeah, right. And so that's sort of a fairly radical concept, the way that we actually have been handling it. You know, really trying to empower people to embrace mathematical exploration individually, which is, of course, I mean, that's, that's essentially like, empowering students to embrace individual exploration and the responsibility and so forth that goes with that is something that our educational system is very, very neglectful of, to say the least, much less, you know, within mathematics education. I was thinking, have you seen uh, Vi Hart's beautiful uh, YouTube videos? Yes. They're amazing. And what one, one of the many things that are amazing about them is that she's sort of really fostering the attitude that you can just get out there and start doodling and exploring and thinking and seeing what the consequences are, which is, of course, what everybody that's really becomes a mathematician is, does. But it's something that we don't do the least bit to show our students. And so uh, that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do here. On a more practical level with, say, our college algebra classes, we're trying to... The formal aspects, say, of algebra are very important, obviously, but connecting that to, okay, the students always ask, what's this good for? Okay, what is it good for? Why do you need to know anything about polynomials, much less factoring them? (laughs) Much less, even more basically, what is quadratic growth in reality? I mean, what's it... What are some basic examples? Well, a falling ball would fit the bill, you know, but why? So just even sort of very elementary things like that, taking these formal ideas and then pointing out how they're connected to things that are actually real and matter, we're trying to do more of that within our courses. And, of course, it's happening all over the place. You know, there's all kinds of other people doing that. Hey, it's Sam. Sorry to pop into the middle of the interview, but I have a huge announcement to make. AcmeScience.com is very proud to present its first Kickstarter project, Relatively Prime, Stories from the Mathematical Domain. Now, this project is going to be an eight-episode series that's going to tackle questions from the world of mathematics. Each episode is going to be structured around some topic, like risk or the calculus wars. And it's going to feature stories, storytelling, interviews, all kinds of awesome things. But in order to do this, I'm going to need your support. Now, I've been doing these podcasts for a long time, and I've loved doing it, and I really want to keep doing them. But I really, really want to do Relatively Prime, and I think since you're listening to this, you would absolutely love it. So all I need you to do is to go over to kickstarter.com and search Relatively Prime. And maybe click on support and give me some money. Or, if you don't have any money to give, blog about it, Twitter it, Tumblr it, put it on Reddit, suggest it to Boing Boing or Slashdot or Dig, upvote it if you see it anywhere. You can even write a letter to someone you know. Just please help me get the word out there about this project so I can get the support that I'm going to need in order to do what I really think 
will be unlike anything that anyone has heard before. And so once again, that's kickstarter.com and search relatively prime, or you can type in bit.ly slash rel prime. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash R-E-L-P-R-I-M-E. So thank you very much for all your help with this project. And now let's get back to the interview. One thing you mentioned in a post back in last November, updating people on what, what was going on with you, what was going on with the math factor, you mentioned that at that point you were teaching a course called Geometry for Future Teachers. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, and you mentioned that you should have done it. Here's a, here's a quote. I should have done this years ago. It's obviously the most effective way to have a significant local impact on the culture of mathematics. I understand that, and I imagine most people listening do as well. I was wondering, though, if perhaps you think that we should really be paying more attention to how we teach teachers, especially in mathematics. Oh, well, obviously. I think everyone who who deals with teachers knows that. I mean... To put it politely, there's a wide range of people that end up teaching mathematics. That's a very delicate way to put it. And some are really fantastic and brilliant. And and I know I get plenty of emails from that sort of category of high school teacher, and I hope you do too. And I can remember some that, you know, in my own experience, that shouldn't have been there. And I think overall raising, both raising the overall level of professionalism of high school teachers, but also even the very good ones, you know, think about the population, the route into high school teaching. I mean, in say 19th century Germany, it wouldn't have been uncommon at all to have a, somebody with, you know, a doctorate in the high school classroom, right? Just because of the way the system was set up. And we don't really provide routes for people that are going to be in the secondary school classroom, much less the elementary, to have been exposed to the actual act of creating original mathematics or to really understand what what a life of mathematics is. They have been exposed thoroughly to the life of the mathematics student, but in terms of you know, really the imaginative process that, say, is embodied in Vihart's videos... It's just not there. It's just not something. It's not part of the training that we provide, and that was very much on my mind when I was teaching the course last fall. And actually, the students hated it for the several weeks. In fact, we had. <laughs> in fact, I'll just tell you, the evalu- we had the evaluations very early last semester. We had them about the tenth week out of fifteen. Oh wow! And they were actually the lowest that I've ever had in my entire career, and which is really would be very depressing, except that. Um, by the end of the semester, the students were seemed to be at least pretty enthusiastic, and it was just that I was pushing them so hard into terrain that they just had never been in. Luckily, I'm chair, so I don't really have to worry about what the chair thinks about <laughs> crappy <laughs> evaluations. But I think they really were. I mean, I think they were. The students in the end really enjoyed it and appreciated it, but it was tough on them, just because. I mean, especially for that population, right? They they've done very well in their mathematics classes up to this point by doing what they're told basically and they go and they have the expectation that they're going to tell students what to do and that the students will succeed on the basis of doing what they're told and that's exactly exactly that's important i mean those formal skills are really important but it's just the beginning right it's the difference between grammar and literature 
So I don't know. I was I was pretty happy with it. Unfortunately, I won't have time to teach it this fall because uh, I'm returning to the mathematical thought course. One other thing I, I wanted to, to talk to you about was, and this, the most recent episode of uh, Math Factor was with a couple of uh, puzzle makers. A lot of the Math Factor shows were about puzzles. You've already talked about uh, how big of an influence Martin Gardner was. And, and of course, he's closely tied with mathematical puzzles, too. And I have never really been a big math puzzle guy. I, I, never, I never really got into the puzzles. So I, I, was, I was wondering, what, what really draws you in so far in, into <laughs> math puzzles? You. Actually, the irony is the same applies to me. I'm not <laughs> that into puzzles. What, <laughs> the way that happened was, you know, that I was basically the, I mean, it just sort of happened that way. I mean, I suppose the history is the old Putnam exam coach who you know, some of our listeners won't know is a very puzzle-type but advanced test. And so the old Putnam coach retired, and so I was asked to do the Putnam just because I know about a bunch of different things. So I started coaching that, and then um, then they, somebody else in the department decided to start a puzzle to serve, but, and so I was tapped to do that, just to make raise our visibility on campus. And then because of that, I attracted the attention of, of my co-host, Kyle Kellams, so this is all totally backhanded. I mean, I like puzzles okay. I suppose it was just be, it was just a series of chance of coincidences. But on the other hand, I am really interested in puzzles. I mean, the conversation I was having with them, I was I am really interested in sort of a theory of puzzles. I mean, I was just sort of thinking about that a couple of years ago and you know, that that's kind of interesting. What make well like to put it sort of Basically, you know, what, what makes a puzzle interesting, at least of a certain type, like the kinds of kinds of puzzles of, that they do, where you, that the two guests have, do, where you're kind of calculating your way through a solution space, a space of possible solutions. And, you know, what, what kinds of structures of spaces are interesting to explore, what aren't? As a graph theorist, maybe that's an interesting question to you. Because there's, you know, some sort of graph by, like, describing what's a simple move from one place to another. And there's some sort of algorithm that the person's bringing to exploring that space, that graph. That's just sort of amusing to me. Yeah, putting it putting it that way, it actually does start to be a bit interesting. I've, I think I may have been exposed to graph theory in a slightly too formal of a way. Yeah, well... Like all mathematicians and their subjects, maybe. Yeah, that's 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 definitely true. It's it's all all seems to be about formality in the end. Well, that's why I got my uh, my PhD in knot theory, and so what I really enjoyed about uh, low dimensional topology was just the number of pictures you could draw and get away with, you know, and cool pictures too. Yeah, no, definitely. I've I don't know much about knot theory, but most of what I know is looking at fun stuff. Yeah. Well. Professor Strauss, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, I have, well, I have a question for you. So, oh, um, definitely. Sort of maybe a couple. So what, what, what attracted you to this kind of endeavor? I mean, how did you get involved doing this kind of thing? So I really enjoy mathematics. I, I have for a, a decent amount of time, and I decided I was going to study mathematics in undergrad, and then I decided, well, this isn't enough. I'm going to go torture myself for a few more years. And when I did that, I decided, well, I want to I wanna hear stories about other people who've, who've done this. I want to hear stories of mathematicians. I want to see what grad students do. And I looked on the internet and found almost nothing. 
And so I've I've been a I was a fan of podcasting for a long time. My iTunes podcast download list has about 40 and I listen to oh, all wow. of them regularly. And it, because of that, I decided, well, I should probably start a podcast. I'd been thinking about starting one for years and you know what? Why not do it about mathematics? And that's that's how I got started. And then I remembered how much I wanted to hear the stories about mathematicians and find out why they did it. I knew why I did it. Why not find out why they did it? And so I started Strongly Connected Components. And then I was talking with Peter Rowlett from Travels in a Mathematical World on this show, and we decided, well, there's no current events news math podcast, so we started Math Maths. And now I am actually uh, just on the edge of starting another show. That's great. Which is going to be called uh, Relatively Prime. Now, this, this is going to be a show much more in the kind of This American Life, Studio 360, Radio Lab kind of realm where I'm, I'm going to do it. They're going to be hour long shows and they're going to be based around some topic and they're going to go really in depth. And, you know, I'm going to find out stories and I'm going to I'm going to tell the, the story of that that topic as I see it through. I, I want to do one on, say, the Polymath Project, which just fascinates me. And What's that? I haven't heard of that. A Polymath Project was the massively collaborative online proving project that Timothy Gower started. Uh-huh. And they managed to prove the uh, Hales-Jewett theorem. Oh, yeah. Uh, 39 of them through his blog com- or through comments on Tim Gower's blog managed to, to prove a yeah, theorem. I guess I have heard of, heard of that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that fascinates me. And in order to do this, I just graduated with my master's degree uh, from UNLV. And in order to do this, I need to get funding. So I'm actually currently running a Kickstarter. Oh, great. To raise money for this. Anyone, anyone interested in finding this, that the shortened link is kck.st slash R-E-L-P-R-I-M-E. Well, I'll, I'll certainly be putting something into that. Oh, well, thank, is, thank you. I think this is great. And I think, you know, I think you're doing a terrific job. And I'm really glad to see some more activity, especially since the Math Factor guy seems to have blown it off. <laughs> 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 well, I, if there's nothing, this, this will be my fifth podcast. There's nothing uh-huh. that I seem to be able to do other than podcasting at this point. That's great. There needs to be more of this. It's a really, it's a golden age for this kind of thing. Have you had Tim Gowers on your program? I have not. I have tried. I managed to get him oh, to respond to really, an email once. Yeah, he's really busy, but you know, I, you know, he's done quite a bit recently with the Princeton Companion of Mathematics is a really remarkable encyclopedia of mathematics is about about a thousand pages long and written with very very carefully directed and edited articles by all kinds of leading people on contemporary mathematics and. He also wrote a book called something like A Short Introduction to Mathematics, which is only like $6.50 on Amazon. Really, really fantastic. So, and, you know, it's great. Even the, even Fields medalists are engaged in really trying to expose broader audiences to mathematics right now. Well, he and, he and Dow are a couple of, uh, I mean, it, the work that they've done in outreach has been fantastic. Yeah. Well, I guess, is that it? Oh yeah, no. I mean, if if you wanna if you wanna keep on speaking, that that's fine. I had just run out of questions for you. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Well, I'm basically out of questions too. I think it's kind of funny because some of the questions that you asked me, I had written down here on the piece of paper in front of me anyway. So I think <laughs> we covered it. So, so uh, I guess that's it.
Okay. Well, uh, for Heim Gummenstrauss, this has been the Math Factor. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> and from Samuel Hansen, this has been Strongly Connected Components. Thanks. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. I want to once again thank Heim Goodman Strauss for joining me on the podcast. He was a great pleasure to speak to. If you have any feedback or perhaps want to suggest a guest, please send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. And also don't forget to head on over to the blog at acmescience.com and catch some links to the cool things that Professor Strauss does on the internet. And also, please, please, pretty please, head on over to kickstarter.com, search Relatively Prime, and at least watch the video I made that's up there. It's pretty cool. Now, the music on today's podcast was the Pie Song from Hard and Firm and music from SP12 uh, that I'm talking over right now, even. And you can find them over at opsound.org. This podcast is a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike licensed podcast. So please feel free to delete all of my words and just keep the much more interesting things that Professor Strauss said. Just make sure that you said the audio originally came from us here at Strongly Connected Components. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you come back for the next episode.